1: Welcome to the New Books in Art channel of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Kirsten Ellsworth, and today we are going to be speaking with Lauren Lessing and Elizabeth Finch, who are curators um, involved with an exhibition of folk art, a usable past, American folk art, at the Colby College Museum of Art. The catalog was published hot off the press, 2017. And um, I would like to start our conversation today by asking um, Lauren and Beth to introduce themselves and also talk about the motivation for the exhibition.
2: Thanks so much. I'm uh, Lauren Lessing. I'm the the Merkin Director of Academic and
0: Public Programs uh, here at the Colby College Museum of Art. And, um also happy to be uh, with you, Kirsten. Um, my name is Beth Finch, and I'm the lender curator of American Art at the Colby Museum.
1: And what um, brought about this wonderful exhibition of folk art from your collections?
0: Well,
2: interestingly enough, folk art was the founding collection of the museum. so we're we're a fairly young museum for an American museum. We were founded in nineteen fifty nine. Um, so we, we kind of missed the first great wave of uh, museum building in the United States by about 60 or 70 years. Um, and at that time, there was some discussion at Colby College about what kind of a, an art collection would be suitable for a liberal arts college and in New England, and American folk art was singled out. Um, we were also the beneficiaries of the generosity of... A married couple, who um, Edith and Ellerton Jetty, who uh, they they ran the Hathaway Shirt Factory in Waterville, um, and so they were they were avid collectors themselves, and folk art was their passion. And so they they both uh, went to antique shops and and little auction houses all around Maine, and they also worked with uh, with dealers to to build a collection and. Um, they donated that collection to the college as the founding collection of the art museum when it was new. So, that, so that it was an important collection that had been here you know, since the beginning. We had, in the last several years, you know, embarked on a project of really documenting our collection through exhibitions and uh, catalogs. And we had published a highlights catalog in uh, 2009 for the 50th anniversary of the museum, and that was followed in 2013 by the Lunder Collection Catalog, um, which, you know, documented the collection of Peter and Paula Lunder, which was an amazing gift to the museum. Um, And then uh, a specific aspect of their collection, which is their wonderful collection of work by James Abbott McNeil Whistler, we published a catalog of that, following and so this seemed like next in line um, and long overdue for a treatment so um, an exhibition and a catalog and so that was a project that was actually begun by another curator Hannah Blunt who um, moved on uh, just after having started kind of dipped her toe into the project she moved on to the Mount Holyoke College Art Museum and so I picked up that project where she left off Um, so I have a I'm actually the director of academic and public programs here, as I said, so I head the education department, but um, my background is in American art, so I have a Ph.D. in American art history. Um, I studied at Indiana University with Sarah Burns, and so it was kind of sitting on a shelf a little bit dusty, so this gave me a chance to blow the dust off and on my Americanist hat again and, and work in that vein. And I, and I have to say that I was uh, my co-curator in the project was Diana Tweet, who is our cats curator here. So I you know I, I really am kept pretty busy by just being the director of the ed- education department, so I couldn't have done it by myself. I had great help from Diana and also from Beth.
0: I would add as well that all of those, uh, or I think most of those publications that all of them, I think that Lauren mentioned, um, our multi-author publication. So, particularly for our collection books, uh, we've established a tradition at this point of um, of reaching out to scholars at various points in their careers. So, very seasoned scholars and emerging scholars, some of whom are Colby College students or recent graduates, to do new research on the collection and. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote a few of those entries, we all pitched in um, and then there were a few additional essays um, but that is something that's I think a distinctive characteristic of how we've gone about these collection based projects and allowing for the collection based projects that we uh, organize here to provide new opportunities for scholarship and um, Lauren can speak about this in greater depth but the um, also, new, new conservation. So it was. A, it was. Uh, it was. So when when the works finally were presented in our galleries, they had, many of them had been newly conserved. Some of them had been newly framed, and um, and they were really uh, looking at looking their best um, for for that project. And I think that you can see that as well in the catalog because they were photographed after all of that um, all of that new work had been done to um, make sure they were at their best um, in terms of their condition and stability.
1: That's clearly evident in this really nicely illustrated um, catalog for the exhibition. And I also noted uh, that an undergraduate had contributed one of the uh, essays about a quilt, and I thought that, that really serves the educational mission of an art exhibit, right? Um, it does. Yeah. yeah. It's important to have many voices involved. I was wondering yes. yes, please, but
0: I was just going to add that that yes that that um those it to have many voices involved means that you have and particularly new scholarship happening, you have new new ideas emerging, so that's really exciting for us when that when that can happen um that kind of um cross connections and pollination between various um various people in, contributing to a publication like this,
1: and with that said, maybe something new that is um occurring in the book is goes right back to your title. Um, And I wondered if you could speak a little bit about where um, a usable past, how the idea and the display of ideas about folk art and the display of folk art have, um, as you point out in the book, a very interesting evolution. And maybe you could talk a little bit about perhaps some older ideas about the importance of folk art and what you seek to challenge in the exhibition?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Well, I, I took the title from um, Van Wyck Brooks, who is a Harvard-educated literary critic, uh, who in the, in the 1920s, he coined this term, a usable past, as a way of um, justifying an exploration of American literature in which he, you know, sort of, uh, Got away from the, the Ivy League-approved sort of polite and very European-influenced literature that he had been taught when he was a student at Harvard, and looked for um, looked to create a new literary canon from uh, from works that he perceived to be more inherently American. And so he had a tremendous influence on the the inward-looking movement in the 1930s and 40s. You know, this idea that we should look to our own, um, we we should look inward rather than outward as a way of understanding what it means to be American and try to find what is distinctive about our culture. And so I I think that Edith and Ellerton Jetty as collectors were very, very influenced by this idea. And their love of American folk art, they were not alone in this. There were a lot of collectors um, in the field and curators who were, uh, and writers who were... um, Rediscovering American folk art in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and finding in it um, qualities that they considered to be uniquely American. And we can look back on this now, you know, from the vantage point of almost 100 years, and and see um, this whole project as being, you know, in many ways more about the 20s, 30s, and 40s than it was about the 19th century. But um, but you know, they they were looking for um, artwork that seemed Raw that seemed powerful, that seemed less um, dependent on European models, that seemed untutored and, and honest, you know. And, and they were spinning out of this um, a kind of vision of what it meant to be American, you know. That was that that was somehow you know strenuous and um, muscular and uh, you know honest and true and you know um, I almost feel like there should be some kind of anthem playing behind me, but it was was tied up with very nationalist ideas about Americanness that were current during those decades.
0: Right, and it even, um, in terms of artists' engagement with that kind of material, it it predates it by a few years, I think it was in the teens, when the artists Hamilton Easterfield and Robert Laurent established an artist colony in Ogunquit, here on the coast in southern Maine and um, began to travel around with people like uh, Kuniyoshi. Um, eventually, the, the, not particularly there, but the, but the Zoraks um, became involved, very involved in collecting folk art. So they would travel around Maine and, you know, to, to go by their stories, essentially knock on farmhouses and ask um, if, if the family who was living there had any portraits in their in their attic, and um, they, they then decorated the shacks, they were fishing shacks, they were using as studios um, during that period. Um, so someone like Marston Hartley was there in the summer of 1917, and produced a whole group of um, paintings on glass that uh, were influenced by what he was seeing in terms of American folk art, and also what he, what he had seen in Europe, in um, in Germany, particularly. So there's, in a sense, the artists initiated this. Um, what an important curator um, of this material, Holger Cahill, called the "Cult of Americana," <laughs> and um, the Jetties were were really uh, picking up on that um, and and pursuing it um, somewhat, following in this following the lead of, of artists um, of modernist, modern American artists.
1: And then as I Ascertain from reading your book, um, or your collection of essays in 2013, we get Roberta Smith questioning what she called a segregationist approach to actually displaying folk art in a setting where you also have academic art and other kinds of art. And I'm wondering how did you address this in the current, um, exhibition? Well, that's
2: a, that's an interesting question. We, um, I mean the exhibition itself really uh, was organized around loosely around themes and it did you know it was embedded in an academic art museum where you can you know the the exhibition was in our jetty galleries, which are our temporary exhibition galleries but you could you know walk next door to the lunder wing and see um, examples of academic nineteenth century and early twentieth century folk art and you could you know, uh, walk to an adjacent wing and see modern and contemporary works. So it was definitely placed in dialogue with work of other periods or other styles. But the the show itself was organized around themes um, really based around subjects like, you know, death, grief, and mourning, which was a big category of... Um, the folk art in the collection or the Atlantic world, you know, which contained our uh, a number of ship portraits and portraits of captains and these fantastic um, whalebone corset stays. Um,
0: does that answer your question? Yes.
1: Yes. And I'm just picturing, unfortunately, I'm not going to see the exhibition in person, but from your conversation and from the catalog, I can just see this much richer context for work and Tied into that, I'd like to hear from you about, you've already started talking about some of the type of work in the exhibition, but um, there's just so many interesting stories, um, the puffy sleeve artists and the accomplishments. I wonder just to give listeners a sense of of the variety here of folk art.
2: It was a pretty wide array of folk art that was on view and it's a wide variety that's in the exhibition. I I have to say there are a lot of portraits. Um, That was portraits were very much in demand um, in the uh, United States of the um, 19th century they were a way of you know documenting individual identity before photographs became um, available and so um, we have a lot of, we had a lot of portraits but it was surprising once we really looked at the collection I was a little worried initially that it was going to be you know two galleries of heads and shoulders but <laughs> But actually, um, you know, you could, you could even break the portraits out, as you say, into silhouette portraits, um, which are small and intimate versus, you know, larger portraits in oil. And we have, um, you know, two beautiful little pastel portraits also, portraits of children, portraits of married couples. And then, you know, we have some, um, some really wonderful genre scenes, including this kind of fabulous what I think is a fragment of a panorama. Um, It's painted with oil and distemper. It's a militia parade. Um, Its its origin is sort of a mystery, but I think it depicts Charleston, South Carolina, and a kind of wonderful um, scene of marching young soldiers, kind of, you know, uh, marching down the street to the accompaniment of military band music. We have a whole category of schoolgirl art, so these were the kinds of... Um, either watercolor paintings or theorem paintings, which were painted through stencils or embroidery works that young ladies would have learned in girls' schools in the 19th century. Um, Most of them deal with romantic love in one way or another. Um, Well, actually, you know, the the theorem paintings don't, but many of them do. People were very interested in documenting their houses and their farms. And so... You know, the, the, um, the exhibition included a few farm scenes like the old homestead at Sudbury, Massachusetts, where you can actually um, get the view from the road of this very neatly kept farmhouse and see in the garden you know, how the plots were laid out. There are cabbages and carrots and turnips and tomatoes all in their neat little rows. Um, it also included objects like... We had a painted fireboard. These were really important for covering a fireplace and preventing drafts from blowing down into the house during the summer months when the fire wasn't kept lit. Um, And we hung that at knee height to try to recreate the original angle at which it would have been viewed. And a fabulous quilt that um, had been sewn by the... uh, the ancestor of a, a literature professor here. Actually, we had two quilts in the exhibition. One um, one was created, as I said, by um, a, a lady who had been the ancestor of a, a, um, a gentleman who named uh, Charles Bassett, who taught English here for, for decades, and it was a quilt that she made before she traveled out to be a young bride in what was then, you know, the Dakota territory, she carried it with her. It was, um, and this was the object that, uh, you know, as you pointed out, um, uh, well actually it was the other quilt that we had an undergraduate write about, but this was a quilt that, um, our, our professor of American art, Tanya Sheehan often teaches with, with, um, because it's a document of this, woman's life up until the, her marriage. It includes all kinds of references to her hobbies and her interests and her passions. It would have been made probably by her family and friends working together um, on her trousseau. And I like to think of her, you know, um, making her bed out in the Dakota Territory with this memento. It was actually sewn together from all of her um, ball dresses and party dresses, That little fragments of them that she would have worn when she was uh, before she became engaged and married, and we had that sort of spread out. We built a, a bed-like, um, I don't know what you would call that, a display case. It wasn't covered with glass, but a display platform for it, and then we have a kind of fabulous doll quilt that um, came to us from another, the family of another professor, a professor of music here. It had belonged to his mother, and we believe, although we don't know for sure, but we believe that it was sewn um, by an African-American quilter. Um, this is this was a real gap in the collection. Um, the, the Jetty collection was really focused mostly on New England folk art, and it didn't include any work by African-American artists that we know of. And so we, we filled that gap in part through the loan of this tremendously interesting doll quilt that... Features six African American children um, standing in rows. Uh, it, I think it speaks to the way that the two quilts together speak to the way that African American quilters and Anglo American quilters were in dialogue with one another at the end of the 19th century. Because African American quilting is often characterized by a more free form whereas Anglo-American quilting traditions are more geometric. And those two things are reversed in these two quilts. Mm-hmm. It's the Anglo-American quilt that's more freeform and improvisational, and the African, uh, African-American quilt is more geometric. Um, so I don't know, am I giving you um, a good sense of the scope of the collection? Beth, what am I leaving out? Um, you know,
0: I, I think that was a really good um, overview, Lauren. I would just say a couple things. One is that... Um, Folk art, uh, going back to your mention, Kirsten of the Roberta Smith um, uh, article in which she, she talks about the need for folk art to be integrated into the display of American collections. That's something that we've taken seriously here for for some time at least in the in the recent history of this institution. So when we were getting ready to install Lauren and Diana's show, we had to do lots of reorganization of our permanent collection galleries to to get this project up and going, but another thing I would just add regarding the the works that are um, illustrated in in the catalog um, is uh, in addition to the many portraits, there's also portraits of places, which Lauren touched on, um, that relate to this history of of modernism in this area. there is um, one of the works that I wrote about was a cheese factory um, in, that we think was probably in New England, and, of course, cheese um, was a great way to feed people who were working in the mills uh, because it was a protein that could um, could travel safely, and um, and also uh, the cheese factories that started around sort of late 19th century um were ways of consolidating and automating uh, things that had happened in farm kitchens until that point. So, so um, you know, it's it was one of those bits of history that was just so fun to dig into and learn about and. You know, ha! Huh, you know, <laughs> cheddar cheese. And uh, who would have thought that would be such a fascinating? And uh, um, I was—I'm um, uh, forgetting his name now, but he's—he is credited in the notes for my entry. The—the um, the scholar, he of course is based in Vermont, of um, cheese making <laughs> in the U.S. Um, was very helpful and was able to identify the various parts of this factory and what was representing what it was representing in terms of a. A farmer who had just taken his uh, fresh um, milk to uh, to this place where you could sell your milk and consolidate in a place that was making cheese and we was able to point out the, the, the cold house that was used for um, storing milk waiting to be come cheese so um, also related to what was happening here in terms of the in terms of industrial it, industrialization in this area, which, um, was inseparable from, um, the cities that were fostering and nurturing the artists who would come here in the summer and, um, and knock on farm doors (laughs) and ask about, uh, what, what, what a farmer and, and his, and, and, and might have in their attic of their, of their ancestors. So there's this, Interconnection between these works that I think is is fascinating, and the history of this area.
2: That's true, and in fact, um, you know, it's people look at folk art as, as a quaint sort of uh, record of the American past, but it's it's directly linked to um, modernization. All of it, you know. I mean, I was really amazed at the number of objects in the show that were based on prints. And so, mechanical reproduction was really important to spreading a kind of um, vocabulary of images that uh, amateur artists used all across the country, whether they were in New England or in the Midwest or um, even in the Far West. You know, so so whether and the images were printed on trade cards and they were printed on. Um, you know, little bits of advertising or they were in gift books or illustrated magazines and they were passed from hand to hand and used and reused. Um, so, you know, we had, there's an image and there's a little watercolor painting probably done by a young lady in the exhibition called Puppies. And it was, a, it's hard to overstate how um, well known this image of two little terrier dogs cuddling with one another was in the middle decades of the 19th century. It was produced in every medium. It was, you can find the puppies um, as a hearth rug. You can find them as a watercolor. You can find them in innumerable pieces of needlepoint. They're worked into quilts. You know, they show up as drawings. So um, all of that relied on industrialization, and it relied on um, the ability to mechanically reproduce images.
1: Such an array of impulses here, documentarian, consumerist, um, quilts that are used. Do I dare ask both of you how you would ultimately define folk art, having put on this exhibition and studied so intensely these examples?
2: Oh, it's really hard. Um, (laughs) In fact, you know, I mean, throughout the process of creating the checklist. We had to wrestle with one object after another to try to decide: Is it too academic? I mean, a, a big part of this was was has to do with whether the artist was uh, had academic training or whether he or she um, was trained instead through a system of uh, apprenticeship. Um, you know, rather than in a formal school, that that was part of what we took into account um, when we thought about what differentiated differentiated folk art from fine art. Um, but it's just, it's very, really slippery, and um, you know, like an example would be Charles Peel uh, Hulk's portrait of George Washington. This is an artist who studied with his uncle Charles Wilson Peel, Charles Wilson Peale is not considered a folk artist. So, what makes Polk folk a folk artist when the, his teacher was not? You know, I um, at the end of the day, I admit that a lot of this was subjective, and I think ultimately has
0: to be. Beth, you want to would chime? I, in? <laughs> I would, yes, yes. Um, I would just say that that in the research that I did when I was working on this, that that the problem of what to call folk art or how to refer to it. Um, has been ongoing. Um, So in the correspondence related to the gift uh, that Edith and Ellerton Jetty gave to Colby, it was the American Heritage Collection, as Lauren has mentioned, but they frequently referred to it as well as um, American primitives. That was another term that you see quite a bit. Um, And then there was an important exhibition that Holger Cahill, this uh, really... um, Uh, forward-thinking, interesting curator, or forward and backward thinking, I guess. He was based at uh, the Newark Museum for many years, but in in, in 1932, he organized an exhibition at the newly established Museum of Modern Art called Art of the Common Man in America. So there was also class issues that um, are engaged in this, and sometimes class assumptions, I think. Um, So and particularly you know let's face it if you knock on someone's farmhouse door and they and you sell them he's he or she sells you a painting and and you neglect to take down all the information I mean I think at the time the 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 reasons that the work the work was being um, collected for uh, for because of what it looked like and what it could perhaps uh, represent so this idea of a usable past. Um, Lauren, I think I remember in your um, introduction to the book, you talk about um, how Van Wick Brooks wrote about how a usable past could, in a sense, be, was related to collecting itself, that um, that somehow you might, all these various identities could be repurposed. And um, sometimes they could be repurposed, um, not necessarily to, to um uh, um, inappropriate, I mean, at the, or consciously inappropriate ways, um, but that, but that, the, that the lack of information about the artworks was sometimes useful because then they could be re- repurposed more freely. I think. Does that make sense? I hope. Yeah, it, I think that makes sense. It's, yeah, it, I think it's it's interesting because
2: Van Wyck Brooks, in that original quote, which I, I was I misspoke. It's not the '20s. It's 1918 that he made that when he said. You know, he's searching for a usable past. He actually used a metaphor of collecting. He's like, you know, we're gonna, I'm gonna search through the dusty attic and right. find, you know. So it was almost as if he was laying it out for people who were would go in search of material culture and visual culture and in, in his wake. Um, and a lot of these collectors and the jetties are no exception they were busy trying to build an American identity for themselves. So Edith Jetty was born in Belgium, I believe, and, and Allerton is the you know son of French Canadians. And so they were both, um, I think, really fascinated by American identity, and they were very proud to be Americans, and they were trying to figure out what that meant for two people from immigrant families. And um, they kind of assembled a, a highly mythologized American past from this collection of sort of cherry picked uh, art gathered from all around New England. And it wasn't as if museums were really doing anything different. You know, they were gathering together a story about the American past in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s from um, this assemblage of objects, uh, some of which were utilitarian, others were, you know, um, purely decorative, and, and some of which you know, were intended to kind of emulate the styles of academic art.
0: Right. And I, I would just add to that, this, um, that the jetties were collecting, well, they, their gift, um, happened, I think prior to the establishment of the museum in 59, but it was a a post-World War II gift. And, um, It was initially those works were initially designated to actually appear in the women's uh, dormitories here um, and dining hall. Um, So there's, I found there was a wonderful story to be told around this narrative of of individualism and um, sort of self reliance and um, around uh, around the shifting um, perspectives on women. Uh, campus here so um, I felt that buried in this story of of this gift to the college was a was a kind of feminist narrative Um, and ultimately they did um, the artworks did enter the museum later and were and were here on site rather than in the collection but we still meet Uh, Colby graduates, alumni who uh, remember the artworks that would stare down from them as they were eating dinner.
1: I found that one of the most intriguing parts of the book, imagining the students living with the works of art in the dormitories, as you're saying, and um, also in terms of identity formation and nationalization, I guess you could say, you really do feature many women artists in this collection, and I wonder, um, in, in the history of folk art, which is very broadly understood, the role of women, would you say there are, I don't want to skip, majority artists are probably women? Or um, how do we assess the role of the women, woman artist in the folk art story? Well,
2: I would just say um, they're not the majority. Uh, it certainly depends. It's medium-specific to some extent. Um, you know, there were there are areas like Needlepoint where women do predominate. Um, they were not, in general, the itinerant portrait painters. I mean, that was a job that required the painter to be on the road um, by himself for a good part of the year, and it wouldn't have been considered a safe or appropriate um, profession for a woman. But um, taken together, when you think broadly about what's encompassed in the term folk art, you know, women are really well represented, and they, they represent about half of the field. And I think um, that reflects a moment in time when academic art was still largely closed to women, really until the end of the 19th century, because they couldn't they couldn't enroll in art academies. They were shut out of avenues for um, to, into professional art um, work. And so, uh, but you know. Traditions like quilting and needlepoint, they were passed down uh, from mother to daughter. They were taught in girls' schools. And so those forms of creativity were open to women. And women, of course, were encouraged to decorate their homes and, um, you know, create beauty within that sphere. And so that that was part of what it meant to be an educated lady in the 19th century, to be able to make certain forms of art. And Kristen, I apologize. I'm going to have to peel off here and leave it and leave the rest of this interview in the capable hands of my colleague well, Beth. Because we Have another. Um. But but this was fantastic.
1: Oh, thank you so much for your participation, and um, I would like to reiterate to everyone that uh, Lauren and Beth's book is available, and also if you happen to be near Waterville, Maine, you can see the exhibition through January 8th, if I'm correct.
0: Um. No, I should. I should correct you. So this was our, uh, this was our exhibition last summer, this current summer, um, through November 12th, we have the exhibition, Marston Hartley's Maine on right, Okay. You. So, um, if you do visit us, there are many works of our folk art collection that have been returned to our main collection galleries.
1: Okay. So you can see it all as they say, right? Well, Beth, since we might have another moment with you, um, any future projects or you've already told us that them about the Mars Mars and Hartley exhibition um, where would you like to go after this study of folk art and all of your research do you want to continue with the subject or
0: well I am lucky and that I I uh, am able to work both with contemporary uh, artists and also with uh, historical materials so um, you know I have Various projects always in development, and always have something I'm researching here, which is, um, you know, it's it's wonderful, and it's great to be at an institution where um, we are working directly with students and faculty. So there's, you know, uh, having just opened the, the Mars and Hartley exhibition that that is on to you now, um, I'm sort of in the process of, of getting a number of projects up and running, um, and in the meantime, just enjoying uh, that that current exhibition. It
1: sounds like busy enough, correct? Um, Yeah. Well, I would like to thank you uh, so much for enlightening us about folk art and the exhibition uh, that was based on the Jetty donation largely to the Colby College. And I'd just like to remind everyone that the title of the book is A Usable Past, American Folk Art at the Colby College Museum of Art. And um, you got to listen to two of the curators speak. There are some other essays and there are entries by a wide range of people. And this book is 2017. It is, the st- I would say, it is the uh, state-of-the-art treatment of kind of a new way of looking at folk art. And again, thank you very much for listening. And thank you to our guests.